that I began, I think, three or four weeks ago on health and healing. All cultures, it seems, throughout history have always wanted to please their gods, whomever their gods might have been. They've looked at thunder and lightning and the noise that thunder makes and wondered if the gods were angry, some cultures, and in different religions. Uh, they've always looked at those signs in the heavens and signs on the earth to try to determine if God was angry with them or if God was happy with them, are there gods or God, usually gods. And I think that we too, as God's people, certainly have to consider that. We don't look at thunder and lightning. We don't look at a lot of physical things that people have worshipped and looked to over the years. But we look to the eternal God of creation. We look to the one who made us. And we want to please him. One of the biggest problems that we face is that, is that we seek to please God, but too often we become short-sighted and seek to please ourselves ahead of God. It's one of the biggest problems that human beings ever face. Because it's easy to put God on the shelf when you're thinking of yourself and how you might be pleased as opposed to pleasing Him. It's easy to forget God. And it was easy for people to even forget their pagan gods until the thunder and the lightning began. And then when the dog crawled under the bed, they would begin to wonder if God was unhappy with them. And I think that spiritually, in many cases, we have done the same thing. I spent quite a little time last week going through scripture showing that all Israel and all spiritual Israel, the church, is sick from head to foot. That it affects the ministry and it affects the rest of the people as well. And that this sickness is something that God is having to deal with. Now today I want to take a different direction. I want to go to the ministry of Jesus Christ, first of all, and see how he dealt with healing. Now there's a great deal in his life and his ministry that had to do with healing. He consistently and continually healed people. Let's go first of all to Matthew 9. I want to touch on one aspect of this first and then go to another. Matthew 9, we'll begin the story here. I want us to, to see, after last week's sermon and the sickness that is in us from head to foot, as Isaiah 1 says, and we backed up with many, many scriptures, that there is a connection between sickness and sin. Notice Matthew 9. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city, and behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. Now, palsy is something that comes on you. Uh, people have palsy to this day. And I don't know that you can point to any one particular thing to say what caused that palsy. There are many modern diseases which we might have difficulty understanding exactly what was the causative factor 
why did this person come down with this particular illness, sickness, or disease? Now, in general terms, we know many of them. In other, ter in other things, we know specifically what might have caused a problem. But with others, we only have a general idea. But here was a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, mark that, we'll come back to that subject very, very strongly. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, your sins be forgiven you. That was as good as saying, be healed. There were sins involved here. Now, whether this man himself had sinned, or whether this was the sin two and three generations back being uh, laid on the children or not, is not explained, but sin is certainly involved. And here, he did make it personal. It wasn't necessarily his father's or his grandfather's. He says, your sin be forgiven you. I guess that answers that part of it. It was this man's sin that Jesus forgave. If we have a lot of sickness, sin is at the door. Sin has been inside the door in some way, form, or fashion. There are exceptions to that, as in the case where I think it was the man who was hunchbacked, and I think we mentioned that in a, in a previous sermon. If not, we may get to it. And they said to him, Whose sins? And they said, No one's. This was done for the glory of God. So there are exceptions. But in most cases, and generally speaking, there is sin involved in some way, fashion, or form. So Christ said to the man, Your sins be forgiven you. If we find ourselves spiritually sick and physically sick, then we need to examine and find out if indeed there is sin involved. And we're going to find that in most cases that is true. Let's go to the book of Mark, Mark 2. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word to them, and they come to him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was carried by four people. And when they could not come near him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Couldn't even get to him. I suppose it's a little bit like modern paparazzi chasing stars of whatever world they worship. They have no privacy, no opportunity to be alone. Christ sometimes took to the mountains, but the crowd around him was so thick that they couldn't even get to him, so they had a bright idea and uh, broke the roof and let him down from the ceiling. There's some dedication. 
There's some beliefs. There's some commitments. All of which are required, as we shall see. We won't leave those subjects alone at all either. When Jesus saw their faith, not just the faith of the one man, but the, one, the ones who brought him, their faith was involved. Now you think that we are not bound inextricably together in the body of Christ so that when one member hurts, another hurts? That is the way God intends it, that when we feel pain, others feel our pain. When Margie is sick, we feel her pain. We have no problem, it seems, praying when we are in pain, and the measure of our growth and love for each other might be determined by how much we feel someone else's pain and how much we are moved to pray for them when they are in pain. We are to love others as we love ourselves. So here's an example of their faith. It doesn't even mention the man of the palsy's faith, I don't believe. It mentions theirs both in Matthew 9 and here in Mark 2. He said to the sick of the palsy, Son, your sins be forgiven you. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Here's human reasoning. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in the spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason you say these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Your sins be forgiven you, or to say, Arise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he says to the sick of the palsy, I say to you, arise and take up your bed and go your way into your house. And of course, he immediately arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Tremendous miracle that he did. People stood back and said, man, I've never seen anything like this before. When we pray for healing, I think it is wise that we include, Father, forgive me my sins. Forgive me for what I have done. But a key element is not just recognizing what our sins might be. One of the key elements, which I think we should understand by now, is to turn from whatever sin we may be sinning. Whatever we are doing wrong, that led us to that point in the first place. At the same time, we have to be very careful about being judgmental one of another and saying that person's sick, therefore they must be a grievous sinner. That is a wrong attitude for us to have. We need to confess our faults, as James 5 says, let others know of our illnesses and problems. Some people will try to hide those things because they want to be private. But we're all part of the body. And those four wanted to help this man. They did what they could to help it. And we should do what we can to help one another. Let's go to Luke 5. 
Luke 5, and here I want verse 20. Here again is an example of the man sick with a palsy. Verse 19, and when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they let him down through the house, taking the tiling loose. And when he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reasoning again the same thing. He wanted to make it clear that it's forgiveness of sin that is involved in healing. I think sometimes we ignore that in prayers about healing. Sometimes I remember to say that if there are sins, or sins that are here, please forgive them and help the person to quit sinning so that the sickness can depart and not come back. There is cause and effect for everything. And if you keep doing the thing that made you sick in the first place, then how can you pray in faith? It does impinge upon your faith. It dilutes it. Because when you have a guilty conscience, it's very difficult to pray in faith. That's why when you do something that is not of good conscience, it is sin. Because it affects your relationship with God. Now I want to make this connection back in 1 Kings. Spend a little time back here with this account in 1 Kings because the same principles applied uh, with what Christ was doing and God's original instruction, his original intent with ancient Israel, all of that's brought forward into Christ's ministry. Now here in chapter 8, Solomon had assembled all the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes in Jerusalem. And he spoke to them in verse 12, gave a speech. The Eternal said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation. Wait a minute, is this where I wanted to start? Yeah, I guess it is. Yes. He turned his face about and blessed the congregation, and the congregation stood, and he said, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth to David my father, and, has, and with his hand fulfilled it. And then he related the story of how David could not build a temple because of his sins, and he had told him that his Solomon his son Solomon would do it instead. So he rehearsed that and said, now we have done it. We built the temple as God said it would happen, just as he instructed David and told him it would happen. And then Solomon prayed. And I want us to consider this prayer. It's a very, very important one in terms of this subject that we are considering now. Verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Eternal in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath who keep covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their hearts. 
There are those words again. All their hearts. That God makes covenants, and there, there are two things here we need to understand. When God makes a covenant, he sticks to it. Now, why does it include mercy? Not because God would ever break the covenant, but because human beings break their word to God. So God, even though he keeps the covenant perfectly, recognizes and understands humanity. He understands our problems. And therefore, when he makes a covenant, he is also prepared to extend mercy when people fail. Some people are unwilling to forgive themselves, unwilling to move forward, choosing rather to sit in self-pity and depression over their past sins. That is not the thing to do. We must recognize that God is a merciful God. Now, it's a different matter when we sin willfully and will not repent, as Esau would not, but when we sin out of weakness, out of selfishness, out of lack of attention, and we go before God, he is there to extend mercy. Solomon made that a part of his prayer, knowing that Israel was fallible. So as we sit here, we understand that we also are fallible, that we too have problems, that we too have weaknesses. And that thankfully we can go before God and ask forgiveness and mercy. Continuing in verse 24. Who have kept with your servant David my father that which you promised him, those you spoke also with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that you promised him, saying, there shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that your children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. He reminds them of the covenant they made with God. And we will get to the covenant that we made with God through baptism before we're done, either today or next time I speak. God willing. Always have to include that. Need to include that, and I'm thankful to include that. And now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, be verified, which you spoke to your father, to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? He asks the question. You said to David, your son will build a house for me to dwell in. And Solomon says, why would God come dwell on earth with the likes of us? You ever questioned that? <laughs> Why would God have to do with you and me? Look at us. Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. God is bigger than the whole universe. He's made the universe. I sit out and look at the stars and it's just endless and goes on and on. And it's endless to my eye. But with telescopes, they can look far further out there than my eye, and it is absolutely endless. And that which is created has to be smaller than the Creator. So Solomon is using some pretty expansive thinking here. 
Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built it. Small little house, and yet God was willing to dwell there. We are the temple of God, both as individuals and as an organization. Why would God dwell in us? Who are we? Yet have you respect to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. So he asks a rhetorical question, and then he says, but the bottom line is, you do pay attention to us. You do come and dwell at us. And the New Testament tells us that any man that denies that Christ is coming and living in his people is Antichrist. You do have respect to the prayer and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. He knew that he was in contact with the God of all the universe and that God was hearing that prayer that day that your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. And God has conferred his name upon you and me. Therefore God is with us, and his eye is on us day and night. Not one sparrow falls to the ground. God does not see it and know about it. Even the hairs of our head are numbered. We don't have that much interest in ourselves, do we? Unless we get down to where there are only four or five, then we might count them. But those who have hair don't spend much time counting it. It's a futility in the first place. And we're just not that interested in how many there are up there. For God has far deeper interest in you and in me than we have of ourselves. He's that involved. Verse 30, And hearken you to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they shall pray toward this place. And hear you in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. A prayer for forgiveness and recognition that we are not like God something that Job had to understand, something we must come to understand with our whole hearts. If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before your altar in this house, then hear you in heaven, and do, and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, to bring his way upon his head, and that's what Ezekiel 33 says in the end time prophecies, that each man will answer for his own life. And justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they have sinned against you and shall turn again to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house. This happened to the church when enemies came in, rented apart, destroyed it, and overcame us. And we scattered like quail before a hunting dog.
says, when we come and pray and make supplication, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land which you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, that's right where we are today between Amos 4 and Amos 8. We're in partial famine of the word and headed for total famine of the word in which men will seek the word from coast to coast and not find it. We are quickly approaching that time. I heard a report just this week of someone who attended another organization, their meetings, and the report that I heard is that this individual had been there two or three years before, and that now it's far worse than it was then. Far less understanding, far less comprehension of what's going on in the church and why. They're not moving, for the most part, people that are the people of God toward greater understanding of what has happened. They're moving toward less understanding of what has happened. I hope and pray, and I do both, that we will move the other direction toward greater comprehension and understanding so that we might change what needs to be changed and please our Father in heaven. For God is angry. And spiritually speaking, we hear the thunder, don't we? And we see the lightning. And we've been struck. Hear, Father, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you. The reason there's no spiritual rain is because we sin. We have to understand the cause and effect of what is happening to the church and why. I have been over this so many times. But it's still new to me. Because there are so many places in the scripture it says it. Over and over and over and over again. I don't think we've addressed 1 Kings 8 before, have we, in the last eight or nine years that I've been preaching this message? Nearly nine now. Never have even come to this one. But it's the same story. 142nd verse. Could get better, going to get worse. If they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Now when we're afflicted, and an affliction has to do with disease, it has to do with sickness, and it has to do with healing. When they repent, key ingredient here, when Christ told a man sick of the palsy, your sins be forgiven, I believe that he understood the man was in a trusting, uh, humble, unsinful attitude. Verse 36, Then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk. Now he asks for forgiveness when we find ourselves in sin, but a key ingredient also is that we find the way to walk. What to do, where to go, how to go about it. 
In other words, we need to be searching the scriptures to find out cause and effect and what to do about it when we find ourselves in the condition that the church has been in. I believe, as I said I think last week or the week before, that this people, this group that I have to do with, are very serious people and truly in our hearts and minds are seeking to find these answers. Now, I don't mean to compliment us in a wrong way and to make us spiritually proud and vain, but can we humbly seek what is wrong, seek God's answers from his word, turn to him with our whole heart, and expect him to hear? That is the message of the whole Bible. Turn from that which is wrong, go the right way, and expect Expect blessing from God. We do our part, and he will do his part. Teach them the good way where they should walk and give rain upon your land, which you have given to your people for an inheritance. And you'll know by the fruits. And I think I can back up what I just said about you by, I believe, an explosion of true knowledge that we've experienced over the past few years and even this past spring in terms of Passover and unleavened bread, in terms for two or three years ago of the order of the Passover and putting God ahead of ourselves in the foot washing. We have had a lot of knowledge come to us that God has opened. That's spiritual rain. The rain is coming, and I want it to continue to come. Verse 37, continuing the prayer. If there be in the land famine, famine of the word, if there be pestilence, disease which follows famine, is there spiritual disease today? Is there physical disease? Blasting, mildew, locusts, that which destroys the harvest, in other words. All things that happen to the crops. Well, are we not God's harvest? Are we not the first fruits of his harvest? Are we not being destroyed by all these things, diseases that come upon crops? Or if there be caterpillar, if the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague... Whatsoever sickness there be, these are all tied together. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all your people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart, and spread forth his hands toward this house, toward the temple of God and God who dwelt in it. Every man has to understand the plague of his own heart. And I'll tell you that is one of the main keys to unlock understanding the people are ignoring today. It goes back to Revelation 3 and Laodiceanism, where every man perceives that the problem is someone else. 
unwilling to address his own heart and say, I am naked and blind and weak. I have great need. So many say they have no need. They have everything they do need. Has the plague abated? Or is it still upon us? There are some incredible keys right here in this one prayer that will unlock understanding that will get us out of this mess if we will follow through. Then hear you in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways. We have a responsibility as a group we have responsibility as individuals. I cannot repent for you, you cannot repent for me. We can only do it for ourselves and help others as the man who had the palsy as we possibly can, through prayer, through physical aid, whatever we can do. And give to every man according to his ways, whose heart you know. God ponders the heart. He wants to know what is inside us, what makes us tick or not tick. For you, even you only, know the hearts of all the children of men. God looks in our hearts to see what is there. Now, I cite the example of David, who was a man who sinned pretty egregiously before God in several different matters, not only the, manner, uh, the matter of Bathsheba, but also the matter of numbering Israel, uh, being a man of war, a bloody man who enjoyed it too much, and I think that is what God more cited him for not building the temple for than anything else. He was a man who had great sin and yet had great righteousness, whose heart was after God. That when he saw his sin, he turned from it and served God wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedness is of God. God is wholehearted. When he punishes, he punishes wholeheartedly. Remember the flood? Remember the book of Revelation and what is about to come? When God punishes, he punishes wholeheartedly. When he began punishing the church in this era, how has he done it? Pretty wholeheartedly. When he forgives, he forgives, not begrudgingly, as humans tend to, but wholeheartedly. That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and there is very little wisdom in the world or in the church today. Wisdom goes crying in the streets, as Proverbs 1 through 7 show. People live for the moment. They live for instant gratification. They tend not to live according to wisdom. Wisdom is the chief thing. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of your people Israel, but comes out of a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name, and of your strong hand, and of your stretched out arm, 
how will people hear these things of God? How will they hear it? Whence comes it? It's up to you and me. God does not proclaim in loud words his glory and his might. He shows it through people. And there's precious little of it going on right now. Have you ever tried to use a dull axe, a dull saw, a dull drill bit, any kind of tool that works well when sharp, that hardly works at all when dull? I've tried many times and wasted a lot of effort and time, and it would have been quicker to sharpen the tool than to try to use the dull one. Or in some cases, throw the dull one away and buy a new one. Which, according to the guests at the wedding, God is going to do to one degree or another. He's going to sharpen those who will be sharpened. He will discard those who will not heed the grinder's hand. For they shall hear of your great name, of your strong hand, and of your stretched out arm, when he shall come and pray toward this house. When they come in contact with the temple of God, it's when they will begin to look and say, Wow, what a God. We thought that's what would happen in Worldwide when we had great TV and magazines and ministries all over the world and churches and offices. That they would come and think, wow, God is here. Didn't particularly happen, did it? We had to pay our way in to King's courts to address them. We had to bribe. And Goto and Raider were going all over the world bribing to cause that to happen. It needs to happen because people come in contact with God's people and they see God working there, not through payola and bribes. We are to be lights to the world. We'll see that a little more. Hear you in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for. If a stranger comes in contact with us, it should affect their lives. They should begin to look at us and say, Wow, God is working there. Isn't that what this says? The stranger is calling, Where is God? And he comes in contact with us and says, God is working there. Now here is a goal and a purpose that we need to address. It is sad, in some respects, that people say, where are the signs of an apostle? Where was casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching the gospel? Where were the signs that followed an apostle? They were pretty meager, pretty small. And look at it now. 
If you think there wasn't much then, look at it now. They have to come, brethren. They have to come, and they have to come from God's people. They have to come from us. I don't mean just us right here, but I mean all those whom God has called in this end time, wherever they may be, and in what organization they might find themselves. Somewhere among all those God called, he is choosing some to be what this stranger is looking for. But the signs of an apostle might follow after. The demons might be cast out. That the sick might be healed in a dramatic fashion. It is going to happen. And it is going to happen somewhere. And it is going to happen through human instruments, because that's how God does it. The question for you and me is, will part of it happen here? The gauntlet is being thrown down. How will we respond? How committed will we be? When God sees us, I mean people see us, how much will they see God? That is the question on the table. Because when people look at most of the church of God today, they don't see God. They see destruction. They see scattering. They see lukewarmness. They see pride and self-righteousness. They don't see dedication. They don't see repentance. They don't see turning to God with their wholeheartedness wherever they contact God's people. Will they see it in you and me? That is a question that must be answered. I think we have a long way to go. I think we're getting on the right track. I think we're headed in the right directions. But we have a long way to go. And anything worth doing requires effort and commitment. It doesn't just happen. We have to work at it. And we do have a long way to go. I know I do. And I think that is true of all of us. Do according to all that the stranger calls to you for, that all people of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel. By our example, at some point in time, the whole earth needs to understand who God is. Whether they like him or not, they need to understand who he is through us. We're all he has, brethren. We're all he's called. I don't mean, again, to limit that to this group of people. Those whom he has called out, he has called out. And that's all. Those are the ones he is working through, and that's all. 
He is not working through Protestants. He is not working through Catholics. He is not working through Hindus or Buddhists or Islamics. He is working only through us. Verse 44, if your people go out to battle against their enemy, do we go out to battle against our enemies day in and day out? Our wrong actions, our wrong thoughts, Satan and the world around us, the Babylon that we are involved with. We go out to battle against the enemy every day. And Paul tells us that our enemies are spiritual, not necessarily just physical. So we need the helmet of salvation, the sword of the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of faith, and so on. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you shall send them and shall pray to the eternal toward the city which you have chosen and toward the house that I have built for your name, and this the church is what he has built for his name, then hear you in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Be reminded of who they are, what they are, what they're doing. If they sin against you, well, there is no man that sins not. That's echoed in the New Testament. There is none righteous, no, not one. And if any man say he has sinned, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And you be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives to the land of the enemy, far or near. Hasn't that happened to the church? It has been carried back. Someone else. This is a step-by-step -step process to end the problems that the church has. And so return to you with all their hearts and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name. Not getting further from the church, but we know that the city is Zion, it is Jerusalem, Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, if I may be a broken record yet again. We turn to God and to his people, his temple, which he has built. Not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, especially as we see the day draw near. We're to be turning to God and to each other with our whole heart and our whole soul. Now we fall very short of that when we backbite, when we gossip, when we hurt, when we speak ill of each other, instead of building up, strengthening, and helping one another. We do that. We have to turn from it. Verse 49, Then hear you their prayer and their supplication in heaven your dwelling place and maintain their cause. Do something about their trouble. We are coming to God with cause, aren't we? 
we are suffering the effects. The cause was our lackadaisical, half-hearted, loathsome approach to God in his ways. We went through the motions, gave him lip service, but not heart service. Lip service means nothing. We've all encountered a lot of people who would tell us something that they would do and then did not do it because their heart simply wasn't in it. We do that with God. We tell him, we'll do this, we'll do that, but unless our heart is in it, we won't follow through, will we? The lips are not enough. The heart, the whole mind, the whole being, the whole soul has to be there. Then hear you their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people that have sinned against you, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Just as a thought to interject here, I have preached the 70 years of Jeremiah, of Daniel, and of Zechariah 1, and applied it to the end-time church, how we would be bound by the chains of Babylon, and how God would release us. We keep looking for release. Maybe it has already come. The understanding that God has given us here of what is going on in this world, why it is going on, has instructed us to get out of it, to leave the cities and go dwell in the field, to gather ourselves together before the financial crash comes, has given us opportunity to do it. Isaiah 52 is so very clearly a physical removal, not just a spiritual removal. God has given us, those who sit right in front of me and those of you who are still out there somewhere, opportunity to depart. He's given us an avenue to follow to accomplish that. And yet some sit back and say, I want to enjoy the life that I have until I get my tail in a crack and then I will run. Now, I'm not going to try to persuade someone who does not want to do that to do it against their will because they will be unhappy if they do it. But they need to begin to examine their hearts and minds and see if they are obeying God or not. Maybe... God has already given us opportunity and we are ignoring and denying it. Remember the old, old story you've heard many, many times about the guy sitting on his house in the flood and a boat came by and they said, oh no, God will save me. And another boat came by, oh no, God will save me. And finally a helicopter came and said, you need help. No, God's going to save me. And the house floated off and the person says, God, why didn't you save me? And God, I sent, said, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What do you want me to do now? That one's so old, we don't even laugh anymore. But it's still so very, very true. 
so very, very true. God has showed us a way to be released. And even those of us who have moved away as much as we can so far from this Babylonian system, import it, bring it with us. Old attitudes, old thoughts, old ways. Maybe we still bring it in over the airwaves, in books, different ways we have of continuing it. Not being careful enough about what we hear, what we watch, and so on. What we bring home in our grocery carts. There is a connection to physical health as well as spiritual health. And maybe we're still sinning. Maybe we still like those foods of Babylon, and maybe we find a way to get around it. If this product is listed as bad, then this one, which is just as bad, was not specifically mentioned, so it must be okay. And so we use human reasoning and do not depart from Babylon. Just maybe God has given us release and we don't recognize it. He gave ancient Israel release from Babylon and most ignored it. Most did not recognize the opportunity to go and build the temple in Jerusalem and repair the wall. Most decided to stay in Babylon. And today is no different than that day. Maybe God sent us a boat, a helicopter, and a plane, and we ignored it. Now the release of the entire remnant has not yet occurred. They have not yet come together. That will happen. I have no doubt whatsoever because it's in the Bible. But if we have been given opportunity ahead of time and deny it, we might find ourselves in trouble at some point. When God gives the information to his faithful remnant and draws them together, they will respond. But what about those that he gives opportunity to ahead of time that they might be a help prepared to do for others and they ignore the opportunity to be in place to help? Maybe their car will blow up on the way and those who did not know until the time will not have any problems. It tells us to bethink ourselves. Think it through. God is not happy when he gives people opportunity to serve, to give, to help, to warn, and they don't do it. Witness Jonah. Witness the other prophets that said, I have something else to do. Or, I can't talk very well like Moses. Witness those who ran 
when God gave them opportunity to be of help. And they ignored it. It isn't just the ministry. We are a temple fitted together by God. We're all here to help. We all have opportunity to accept God's offer, to act on the knowledge he gives us, or to reject it and face whatever wrath might come upon us. Sometimes we look at the things God gives us to do, not as an opportunity, but as a chore, and we don't want to shoulder it. I know I have my days when the burden that I feel to preach to God's people the truth of the way things are is pretty heavy. There are days I just assume never preach again, never say another word, go sit in the back and let somebody else do it. Because it's hard. It's not easy. I'm going to read to you, this is from an acceptance speech of Chuck Baldwin, who accepted the vice presidential nomination from the Constitution Party at their national convention in June. A fellow named Michael Parotka, if I said it right, or Paroka, whatever it is, uh, was nominated as the presidential candidate. I don't want to get into all the politics of it, but this fellow is a Baptist minister. And I think he has some insightful things to say. He decided to take the vice presidential nomination from the Constitutional Party because he recognizes that both Republicans and Democrats and the candidates which they have today are globalists, they are pro-abortion, they are against virtually everything God has to say, they're pro-homosexual. Someone asked Dick Cheney recently what he thought of homosexual uh, commitments between people or arrangements. And he says, we have a daughter that's homosexual, so we understand. That was the answer. So this man felt he should get involved, but he had well-meaning friends say to him, Chuck, Michael can't win, you can't win. Why bother? I am afraid that many Christians, especially my fellow pastors, somehow believe that when it comes to politics, it is our job to play God. Yet we don't accept this attitude in any other venue of life. However, when it comes to politics, we suddenly feel God needs our help. We suddenly believe it is up to us to decide the things that are duly, duly given only to him. And let me translate that a little bit. Here we sit, God's people, and often we don't want to get involved. What can I do? Who am I? How could I be important? And yet every one of us is, or God would not have called us together, would he? He wouldn't have done it. 
If we were not an important part of the body, he wouldn't have called us. The toe, the toenail are all important to the body. All you've got to do is rip a toenail off and you'll find out how important. I took hold of a finger yesterday and got it in my teeth and jerked the hangnail out. Even that hanging nail suddenly was very important to me because that hurt. But I didn't have any clippers handy. We're all important to God's purpose or we wouldn't be here. So that I'm reminded of King David when he said, The battle is the Lord's. I doubt seriously that whenever young David, before he was king, who could not even wear the armor offered to him by King Saul, went to face the giant with nothing but a stone and sling, paid any attention to the good Christian brethren of his day when they said to him, Surely you can't win. People would tell us we can't win. People would tell us it's hopeless. People would tell us what we're doing out here is ridiculous. So be it. I think we are responding to some scriptures God put in the Bible for the end-time church. And I do not believe we can go wrong in so doing. Instead, David said, the battle is not mine, the battle is the Lord's. And who is this uncircumcised Philistine to stand against the armies of God? So while the rest of the army cowered in fear, that one man stood on the field of battle and committed his future into the hands of God, and God did what only God can do. Gave David a great victory over Goliath the giant. We have to read what God says. We have to do it. We cannot shrink back. We cannot be cowards. We must face the reality of today's world and today's church and do something about it. All Israel cowered in fear. Only one man stood forward to do something about it. And using this example is why this man decided to get involved. Now, God tells us, don't even pray for this nation, because it will not repent until he unleashes his wrath on it, and that's sad. This man is doing something which will prove futile. But we are doing something which will prove victorious. But we must commit ourselves to it. David did not go down before Goliath without first committing himself to what he was going to do. He actually had to go down to the creek and pick out some smooth river rocks for his slingshot. He had to actually do something Do you think he was ridiculed? <laughs> All these cowards, hundreds of thousands of them in camp, and this one giant standing on the other side of the creek, all are you yellow-bellied cowards, 
What's wrong with you? Send somebody down here to fight me. And they all cowered in fear. The people of God! And one man tried on the armor and said, I can't sling a stone with that thing on. Can't carry the sword. I'm just a youth. Cast it aside. Went out and started rummaging around in the river to find rocks. And everyone was standing by life saying, His rocks are in his head. That's where his rocks are. Laughed him to scorn. <laughs> that poor fool, they said. He really thinks he's, <laughs> he really he's going to go fight that giant. Can you believe it? Look at that idiot. David said, the battle is not mine, the battle is the Lord's. What about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were committed, absolutely committed to God. Heart, mind, body, soul, they were willing to give their bodies to the lions or to the fiery furnace, if God so wills. And they didn't just get on their knees and say, I love you, God, please make the lions and the furnace go away. And God didn't require them to be tested. didn't happen that way. Daniel actually got thrown in. They actually got tossed in the fiery furnace. Then God answered. When they came to the very point of death, God answered. What about healing? What about trust in God, who is our healer? I have seen in my own experience, people bring pe God bring people right to the point of death before he answered to see if they would trust him all the way. There is not much of that kind of faith today, no, not in all Israel, not in the whole church. We have not committed ourselves to God the way David did when he was laughed to scorn. We have not committed ourselves to God the way Daniel and the three boys did. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who seeks to lose it in God will find it. Are you willing to give your life? Are you committed with your whole life to physical death, if need be, for what you believe? Are we committed? Are we convicted? If you're convicted, all the way to your heart, you'll do something. If you're just going along for the ride and hope you get saved, and you do everything you can to preserve this physical life, 
there is no commitment to what God wants done in your heart. I'm sorry, that's just the way that it is. We have to be ready to go all the way. He's speaking of the American society when he says, How have we reached this position of compromise and cowardice? Why have we acquiesced and surrendered our American heritage and our Christian convictions and allowed abortion and allowed homosexuality and a lot of other things that God condemns? Why have we done it as a people? Why have we as a church allowed ourselves to be carried downstream and accepted Babylonian culture and not thrown it off? Why? He says, in my opinion, the chief culprit rests behind the sacred pulpits of America. Call them sacred if you want. I am ashamed to say, but I believe that the majority of the men of God, the pastors of our churches across America, have become cowards. These men who have become ear ticklers, who put their fingers to the wind to see which way it is blowing in order to decide what and how to speak, are a disgrace to the colonial preachers who led the moral and righteous fight in our war for independence. Not only should they tear the story of Daniel out of the Bible, they should never again preach on the story of John the Baptist. Need I remind my brethren that Jesus said of John the Baptist, there was never a man greater born of women. with something else here. Oh, let me continue. One of my favorite quotes of John Adams is when he said, It is the duty of the clergy to accommodate their discourses to the times, to preach against such sins as are most prevalent, and recommend such virtues as are most wanted. For example, if exorbitant ambition and venality are predominant, Ought they not to warn their hearers against these vices? If public spirit is much wanted, should they not inculcate this great virtue? If the rights and duties of Christian magistrates and subjects are disputed, should they not explain them, show their nature, ends, limitations, and restrictions? How much ever so it may move the gall of Massachusetts, from what he was speaking. Doesn't make any difference. You say it because it needs to be said, not out of fear. In other words, it doesn't matter what the politicians think. It doesn't matter what the people think or what anyone else thinks. Just preach the truth. The problem ultimately is not the tax-exempt status of the church. Now that has been shown to be a problem, and certainly it is. In other words, the churches are afraid to say the truth lest the government remove their tax-free status. It's not that that is the ultimate culprit, he says. The problem is the cowardly heart of the preacher in the pulpit. If through some marvelous act, some wave of the wand, you are able to remove the tax-exempt status as an issue in this debate, and thereby cut down the tree that they hide behind, they would quickly run to another tree in order to find solace and peace. The problem is not the tree of tax exemption. 
The problem is the cowardice of the man who hides behind it. We need men of God in the pulpits who are willing to preach the truth, come what may. Is this true of the Baptist church? How true is it of God's church? I really believe this too. The problem in our churches is that our preachers are primarily afraid of their own congregants. Preachers know that when they get up and begin to speak the truth that they are going to offend some of their own flock and perhaps lose some of their own sheep. It is not the tax-exempt status they are afraid of. They are afraid of offending their own congregations. And when the day comes that the preacher fears his congregation, he is no longer a man of God. He is a hireling. I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. And they are so true of the church today. He says, I do not mean this braggadociously. God knows my heart. But in the 29 years of my ministry at Crossroad Baptist Church in Pensacola, Florida, it has not always been an easy road. More than once I've had to stand in front of my people and take positions that were highly controversial and more than once, and my wife is here as a testimony to the truth of what I am saying, when I mounted the pulpit, pulpit, I took with me my suitcase, and I said to my congregation, if when I am done speaking you would like to fire me, feel free to do so. But for the next hour, you are going to hear the truth. Like it or not. Fire me or not, you're going to hear the truth. The church needs a lot more of that. If it's true in this world's religions, it is certainly true in God's religion. If it's true in physical Israel, it is certainly true in spiritual Israel. Along those same lines, here's an article from Time, August 16, 2004. It's entitled, Roll Over, Martin Luther. And it's actually an article about the decline of the Protestant churches in America today, and in the world for that matter. And the question is asked here as a byline. I won't read much of this, but I want to pick up a point here, which goes along with what we just read. The question asked is, why is mainline Protestantism shrinking? Honey, I've shrunk the church, kind of a thing. Three explanations proposed over decades may each have some validity. The first one is the one that I want to focus on. He says, mainline churches did not require enough commitment, theologically or evangelistically, from congregants whose enthusiasm waned accordingly. <coughs> Not enough commitment was called upon from the ministry to God's church. We were allowed to give lip service, to pray and pay only, and not commit our lives to serving God with all our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. And what has happened is a result of that. We are shrinking 
are one of the very main reasons that the Protestant churches are shrinking. Not enough commitment. Not enough personal responsibility laid upon the people. Or, for that matter, the ministry not laying enough responsibility upon themselves. Enough of that. Let's see if we can finish First Kings. I think I was in about verse 48. Where these people recognize their sin and begin to repent and turn to God with their whole heart. Verse 49, Then hear you their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. And forgive your people that have sinned against you and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you and give them compassion before them who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they be your people, we be God's people. And your inheritance, which you brought forth out of Egypt, Egypt representing sin, God has brought us out of sin in this age. That your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and of the supplication of your people Israel to hearken to them and all that they call for to you. We want all our prayers to be answered. We want all our needs to be fulfilled. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. For you did separate them from among all the people of the earth. Remember what Peter said, 1 Peter 2? where are a purchased, a ransomed people, a special people, an ambassador or ambassadors before God. We're separated from the rest of the world. And yet when God gives us a part, uh, he tells us to, phys to spiritually separate, and then we find scriptures that say physically separate, most don't want to hear that. They just don't want to hear it. As you spoke by the hand of Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Did he separate them only spiritually and leave them in Egypt? No, he didn't. He took them right out into the desert. And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice. So he quit praying to God. Now he addresses the people. And he says, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. God did all he said he would do. Okay? Verse 57, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us. The New Testament tells us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is not going to leave us. The danger is us leaving him, which is what we did. We sold our hearts out to the world. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the eternal, be near you, Lord our God, day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servants and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require. We are in a situation where God's attention is required all the time. 
and where he wants our attention in some form all the time. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is none else. Israel was to be an example to the rest of the world that God is God and there is no other God. I submit to you that that mantle which Solomon was laying on the people of Israel here and which they had accepted at Mount Sinai is now laid upon you and me. That's where it is today. We are to be the light to the world. We are to be a candle set upon a hill that cannot be hid. That is one of our goals and purposes, brethren, that we must be committed to. We're not out here to save our hides. We're here to become a light to the world. A light that blinds their eyes. A light that cannot be hid. That is the mantle that has fallen on you and me. We cannot deny it. We cannot run from it. We cannot hide from it. We must accomplish it or die. Or die trying. Do we understand the stakes that we face? Eternal life is dependent upon it. Physical and spiritual blessing now is dependent upon it. We have a responsibility not to ourselves but to the whole world. God is going to set a light on a hill that cannot be denied. And you and I are called to be a part of that light to shine. Now how do we get from here to there? We must bethink ourselves and our shortcomings. We must begin to repent and to turn to God with our whole heart and to go to him in supplication and ask him not to forget us but to remember us always as is necessary to the circumstance. And we must become what he has called us to become. We are not here for personal salvation, as Herbert Armstrong told us many times. We are here for a purpose, and it's not just pray and pay. It's to be a holy, righteous, separate people dedicated to the almighty God of heaven and earth and to be a light to the rest of the world so that when they see us, they cannot deny that there is a God in heaven. What is it going to take to get us there? Let your heart therefore be perfect with the eternal our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice to the eternal. Now let's see what God's answer is. Chapter 9, very quickly. It came to pass when Solomon had finished the building of the house of the Eternal, the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he was pleased to do, that the Eternal appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have hallowed this house which you have built to put my name there forever 
and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. Today, God is with his first fruit, spiritual Israel, an offshoot of ancient Israel. And if you will walk before me as David your father walks in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom of Israel forever. Are we not promised kingship, priesthood, jewels and crowns in the kingdom of God over all Israel and the world? That's us. We're the ones. Then I will establish the throne. There shall not fail a man to sit upon it, but if you shall at all turn from following me, you or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, the culture, the society, Babylon, anything that is idolatry or a different god. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight. That's what he's done to the church today. Read Isaiah 5, Lamentations, on and on. And Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. Spiritual Israel, the church, is a byword today. Who ever heard of Worldwide Church of God at this point? And what do they think of it if they have heard of it? And at this house, which is high, everyone that passes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss and they shall say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they shall answer, here's cause and effect. They shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore has the Eternal brought upon them all this evil. There's your answer. Then and now. It's what happened to ancient Israel. It's what's happened to spiritual Israel. When we see the spiritual sickness and this affliction that we have, it is for cause. You must get rid of the cause. So when Christ told the man, your sins be forgiven you, there was cause. It doesn't explain just what. We need to bethink ourselves and find out just what and just get over it and do what we need to do and we will again find blessing from God. So I'll end that section and we'll get into something else in one sense more positive next time. I mean this still hurts and it's hard to hear these words but for the next hour you're going to hear the truth. I, I speak that in quote. So next time we'll be a little more positive, but let's take the lesson before we see the positive side of where we must go next.